Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Science class is meant to have hands-on experiments. They're all looking at microscopes and finding these disgusting worms and things that were in the pond, and people are talking to each other and sharing their ideas. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about how science teachers and students are adapting to remote learning and taking the lessons outside, from nature observations to learning about physics by dropping a raw egg. And we go inside Vermont's prisons to see the response to COVID-19. We've been planning and we've been discussing and talking and nobody expected a surge like we, we had. Plus, a tow truck driver wrestles with working during the pandemic and getting customers to keep a distance. You get up there and the owner of the car is there and the owner of the shop comes out and they both want to talk and I'm trying to back up and stay my distance. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. The pandemic has been a time of great change, and many of us have been forced to adapt. So we're going to start out the show by looking at how we've adjusted to this new normal during lockdown. We know that schools have transitioned to remote learning, but how is that working for science classes, where it was all about hands-on learning in the classroom before coronavirus? New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson caught up with students and teachers who are discovering the possibilities and limitations of science at home. Dr. Sue Pike teaches science at the Dover Private School, St. Thomas Aquinas. One of the things she misses the most is seeing all her kids in a classroom peering into microscopes. One of the favorites is like the pond water ones where we're looking at different species and then doing things with food webs. And they're all looking at microscopes and finding these disgusting worms and things that were in the pond. And people are talking to each other and sharing their ideas. Sharing ideas in a lab is central to science education. Pike says it's nearly impossible to recreate that magic online. We're all getting tired of like looking at a screen of faces, oftentimes with just the name. And it's just like talking into the void. Most of Pike students don't have microscopes at home, but they can still go outside. And that's where some of the most engaging work happens. Recently, Pike asked her students to come up with a question about something they saw in their backyard. Freshman Rory Hatch asks if there's a certain part of his magnolia tree that blooms first, depending on the amount of sun it gets. So they talk it through on a class Zoom call. So how could you do this? So you've got this tree and I guess right now it has flowers, or you know that from past well, it, Last year it bloomed, but only two flowers bloomed, and they're on one part of the tree. Most of these students say there's a perk to remote learning, more time outside. But advanced concepts in science and math classes are way harder to grasp now. Student Ryan Storm says he misses having a teacher look over his shoulder as he's doing calculations. It's really hard to ask a teacher through like an email or even a video chat because it's like you can't do it with them. 
This means teachers can't see in real time where students are getting confused, and that makes it harder to track progress. The story is a bit different for elementary school science. These lessons rely less on high-tech labs and more on simple materials that can often be found at home. April Marsh teaches at a public elementary school in Gorham. She recently assigned the egg drop challenge. So they were challenged to create some sort of device that would protect a raw egg when it was dropped from various heights. Students loved it. This is a lot funner. Meet fourth grader Andrew Albert. He says all the screen time these days hurts his brain and eyes, but this assignment felt like an adventure. So I was like thinking, I think I need to research something because I never done this before. Eventually, Andrew found a solution. His sister helped him make a video for Mrs. Marsh. First, he cuts open a toy rubber ball. Then I'm gonna put popcorn in it. This is gonna be hard. Once it's full of popcorn, in goes the egg, which is wrapped in a sock. For extra protection, and so it doesn't explode. (laughs) Then he drops it from his deck and takes a video of the results. And look at that. Yeah, a fresh egg, not even hurt. Later online, Marsh asks him to explain the physics of it, how energy got transferred, why the egg survived. As far as Marsh is concerned, that was a success. But she says managing expectations for remote learning is a balance. You know, you give the material the best way that you can and you hope that they retain the information. But with also the understanding that all of them are in very different environments in their house and have very different levels of support at home. Take the mold terrarium. Recently, Marsh asked her class to leave a slice of bread in a plastic bag and watch it grow mold. Some told her, we don't have enough food at home. We can't let a slice of bread go to waste. Some families have found remote learning discouraging, but science educators say there are ways to make science fun, even if school at home feels like a drag. Gabby Brott is a coastal science educator with UNH Extension. She has three kids, 10, 8, and 4, and she says the only way they're getting through this is to immerse themselves in the woods. We're calling them feral children at this point. (laughs) Going outside helps Brott and her kids release their pent-up energy, and it gives them a natural lab to poke around and ask questions. This reinforces a basic principle of science. You ask a question, you try and find the answer. And it can be very simple. It's like, hmm, do you hear the birds? Do you hear that song? I wish I knew more about those songs. The other day, the family used an iPad app to identify newly sprouted spring plants. They stop, take take the the picture. picture. And let's see what it says. Dwarf cinquefoil. Dwarf cinquefoil? Yeah, and I think it's... um, It kind of looks like strawberry. I think it's real. Cool. With the app, Brat uses this little plant to introduce a big concept. It tells you all of that it belongs to. This is called taxonomy. So it tells you it's from the kingdom plantae. When Brat's kids lose focus, they move on to something else. And Brat says that's okay. If you're trying to do home science, it should be short, hands-on, and built off of kids' curiosity in the moment. And if you're not a trained scientist, she says, don't sweat it. Just go outside and start asking questions. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. The pandemic has put a lot of stress on college students. In just a few weeks, many have had to pack their bags and leave campus, then transition to online classes. 
And for those set to graduate this spring, the economic uncertainty caused by the coronavirus has many on edge, and some rethinking their plans after graduation. Maine Public Radio's Robbie Feinberg has more. Hunter Chesley says she hasn't gotten much sleep over the past month. She's a senior at the University of Maine at Augusta, and she's anxious about COVID-19, how it could affect her family, and what it could mean for her future. It is hard because I feel anxious all the time. Um, I'm nervous that I won't be able to get a job after graduation. Um, So that's kind of all I'm thinking about uh, right now. (laughs) So just because I'm scared people are going to not be hiring and the economy and things like that. Chesley's path toward a college degree has had a couple of twists and turns. She transferred out of UMA to study medical assisting before eventually re-enrolling at the school to major in mental health and human services. She wants to get into social work. But the COVID-19 pandemic has upended her plans. She's on a tight budget, and with businesses closing and millions losing jobs nationwide, she's stressed about how to make her finances work in an uncertain economy. You know, the stimulus checks just came out and things like that. And because I'm a college student and my parents claimed me last year, I don't qualify for a check. So finances are definitely tight and it's very worrisome. And especially where, you know, I don't know what's next for a job and things like that. Things were great. You know, a month ago, we had, you know, 2.5% unemployment. Everybody had job offers. It was, you know, this wonderful time and very optimistic. And then, boom, it's just like this big crash of, I don't, of uncertainty. Chrisanne Blackie is the director of the University of Maine Career Center. She says that constant uncertainty over the last month has been unnerving for students as they attempt to finish the semester online and search for jobs and internships. Because of the uncertain job market, she says, some students are now talking about grad school instead. But Blackie also sees some positive signs. Job postings, for example, are still coming in, she says. And she's encouraging students to consider opportunities that they might not have thought about in the past. So I think if they can go forward and embrace the uncertainty and say, okay, I'm willing maybe to take a job that I hadn't looked at before because it wasn't really what I was interested in, but I could do this job or I could do an internship or I could volunteer and look at everything that they do is an opportunity to develop skills, to learn about themselves. They may be surprised at where they end up in a very different place than where they thought. For some seniors, COVID-19 restrictions are already changing the location and type of jobs they're seeking. Timothy Kaplowitz, a senior from Bates College now living at home in New York, says a few months ago he was planning to move to a new city and start a career in film. But at this point, obviously it's, it's completely impossible to like go look for apartments in some other city at this point like i'm just gonna try and find something near new york just because it's it's easier it's, it's more manageable so in that sense it's really changed the course that i i thought my life was going to take i guess but in terms of like what i'm applying for i, I think i'm applying for like similar things for the most part but i certainly and being much less selective over what jobs I apply for and what jobs I don't, just because, like, I just need a job. Kaplowitz's classmate, Ryan Lazanik, is a Portland native and Bates student government president. He's had similar conversations with other out-of-state students who aren't likely to return. I've talked to a few students who have said, I don't have the economic means to come back to Maine anytime soon, or it doesn't make sense for me to come back to Maine anytime soon. 
and for me as a manor, it's it's really concerning to see all these really amazing, bright young people who are going to stay in the state now being like, okay, I don't see economic opportunities here anymore with the economic decline, and also I don't have the ability to come back. At the University of Maine at Augusta, senior Hunter Chesley says she intends to stay in the state after graduation. She's also expanding the kinds of positions she's looking at. And in the meantime, she's helped to set up Zoom meetings for students three times a week, where she and her classmates can talk about their challenges. For students to be able able to have a chance to talk with somebody who's going through the same thing. And While the anxiety and uncertainty aren't likely to go away anytime soon, Chesley hopes the meetings reassure students that they're not alone. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robbie Feinberg. We turn now to a school principal in Springfield, Massachusetts. Principal Aria Coburn is head of the Springfield Renaissance School. As part of WBUR's education series, Lessons Learned, Principal Coburn reflects on how speaking on a personal level with students and listening can help them stay engaged in the decision-making process. They definitely want to say in what's happening. I think that there's also a high level of just trauma of not having the school as a foundation and a support. So we see a lot of students having a hard time organizing their time, trying to balance time at home, um, and then attend to the academics. And so they really wanted us to figure out a way to not just send assignments out, but to build in that time for them to have that human interaction, to talk about how they were feeling with the pandemic. Being a principal is is more than than leading a school. It's a a lot of different compartments that you have to be able to oversee. So I am currently finishing up my fifth year as a principal at the Springfield Renaissance School. And it didn't dawn on me until I was in the position and preparing to meet uh, the families. There was this weight and there was this fear that I was a first year principal. I had no prior experience being a principal. And I didn't want anyone to attribute anything to my race or the fact that I was a a woman. My narrative was always driven by, hi, you know, I'm I'm Aria Coburn. Um, I graduated from Northeastern University. I got my master's at American International College, born and raised in Springfield. I was trying to put those pieces up that people could connect with, I thought. But there was this piece of authenticity that the the community wanted that I wasn't giving uh, because they wanted to know who who I was. And it was an incident that happened during my third year as principal. It was the use of the N-word and I wasn't ready to deal with it. And so the incident happened in an eighth grade class where um, two students One uh, African-American student and one a Hispanic student were having a conversation. The Hispanic student uses the N-word with the A at the end. Teacher corrects the student. Um, Students push back a little bit and the teacher calls the office to report it. On the phone, the teacher uses the word and the students get upset. They walk out of class and they come to my office. So I listen and I said, "Okay, all right, I hear what you're saying. Let's figure this out. You know, I I still was toying with this neutral piece of, I don't have all the pieces yet. I hear your side. I want to figure out what happened. I wasn't there. And, you know, I'm looking at the kids and I can see that they're, they're upset with me. 
they're like, there's no excuse. What do you mean? What more do you, what more information do you need to have, Ms. Coburn? In having the conversation with the students, I knew that I had to change how I had been doing stuff. It pushed me into a place that, ready or not, I need to not just be a leader, I need to be a Black leader. And that meant that I had to share with my students where I stood on issues. And so I pulled them together for an assembly and I had this conversation with them. And I talked about my journey as a Black woman, as as a mother to, um, to Black children, as a wife to a Black husband in the fears that I had. It was a defining moment for me as a leader um, because I had never done that before. In several days after that, students responded positively. I had more conversations with students about race and what they had been feeling. And I didn't realize that students had been carrying this weight on their own of what does it mean for them as Black students and how do they deal with the issues that are happening in the world. And so I think that that's why it's such a defining moment for me, because it wasn't just about me navigating through this space of being a Black leader. It also empowered my students to name who they were. In this situation, what we've been trying to really be aware of is balance the social-emotional pieces. We're starting to think of those assignments that are going to push students to think about this situation um, and what, what it will mean for years to come. Aria Coburn is principal of the Springfield Renaissance School in Massachusetts. That story was produced by WBUR's Carrie Young for the series Lessons Learned. Sound design by Tim Skog. You can find more stories from the series at WBUR.org. After the break, we go inside Vermont prisons to see how they're addressing the coronavirus. Plus, an investigation into injuries and deaths in Massachusetts jails and the connection to for-profit healthcare companies. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone, through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Now we're going to head inside Vermont prisons with Brave Little State, a podcast from Vermont Public Radio that's powered by listener questions. One listener wanted to know, what's going on in Vermont prisons during the pandemic? The answer looked one way a couple of weeks ago, and it looks very different now. VPR's Emily Corwin starts in the present and works her way back. I mean, tell me about the last week for you. I, like, what was last week like for DOC leadership? Um, <laughs> crazy. This is Al Cormier. He's the facilities executive for DOC, the Department of Corrections. Wednesday, April 8th, DOC announced a Vermont inmate had tested positive for COVID-19 for the first time. And immediately, they tested every inmate and employee inside that prison, the Northwest Correctional Facility in Franklin County near Swanton. Results came in the very next day. 33 inmates and 17 staff members were positive for COVID-19 in just that one prison. It's, it's hard to describe because it was, you know, we've been planning and we've been planning and we've been discussing and talking and um, 
nobody expected a surge like we, we had. DOC had just recently decided that if they needed to quarantine more than a handful of inmates, they would put them in an empty unit in the prison in St. Johnsbury. It had been hypothetical. Now it was real. The same day the test results came in, DOC transported 28 COVID-positive inmates from Franklin County to St. Johnsbury. DOC vehicles backed the inmates up to the quarantine unit's fire exit. So they went right into the unit. They didn't even have to go through the, the admissions area or, or the general population areas. It was all completely separated. Here in St. Johnsbury, each COVID-positive inmate has his own cinder block cell with a toilet and a window looking out into the day room. So the day rooms look normal, other than staff in full masks and glasses and goggles and Tyvek suits. The, the, the living units look the same. About 25 unquarantined men are incarcerated in a different unit at the St. Johnsbury Prison. It's their job to cook for sick inmates. They told me they don't like that the same officers go between the quarantine unit and theirs. But Al Cormier says there's a rigorous process that protects the inmates and the guards. To get to the quarantine unit from the rest of the prison, he says, guards walk through a gym and into a hallway, which he calls a, quote, warm zone. And then it goes outside to a, to a, a tent. So inside this large military-style tent is all the donning and doffing areas for the staff. So they go out, they get their PPE, they put their PPE on, and then they walk into the facility. When they're done, they leave that, that hot zone, they go back into the tent, all their PPE is, is taken off, it's dipped in bleach, it's cleansed in bleach, they, there's a washing station there, um, they can wash their hands, there's hand sanitizer, they bleach the goggles, they, they put the mask in a paper bag, they're able to spray down their feet and their shoes with a, with a bleach solution to, to kill everything before they walk back into the facility. Cormier says these staff do have N95 masks, but they have to reuse them five days in a row before they get a new one. According to the CDC, this practice increases risk but is acceptable during a shortage. There are now more than 30 inmates quarantined in St. Johnsbury. Moving them came together pretty quickly. But Cormier says the department has been planning for coronavirus since February. That's when they started asking visitors and new inmates about travel to places like China. In early March, he says, supervisors were already gaming out worst-case scenarios around conference tables. What if we get a coronavirus case here? What are we going to do? What if we get 10? What are we going to do? Where are we going to put them? Where are we going to house them? Do we have the medical supplies to do this? They realized there might be shortages. Once we started hearing it, Basically, it was this whole toilet paper rush, right? We're like, we probably ought to get ready for some of this. They started stockpiling food, cleaning fluid, medical supplies. By mid-March, they canceled in-person visitation and started taking staff members' temperatures. Then, on March 23rd, the first staff member tested positive at the prison in Newport. A week later, a staffer in Franklin County also tested positive. That's where the outbreak is now. The next day... Governor Scott signed the executive order telling everyone outside prison they had to stay home. For those of us on the outside, everything was different. This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. My first phone call with Brian Rock was three days after Governor Scott's stay-home order went into effect. I'd already been working from home and social distancing for three weeks. But for Rock, who's incarcerated at Northwest, where the outbreak is now... 
little had changed. Yeah, I mean, I go to the gym every day the gym's available and I'm running around playing basketball with people. Inmates were still eating meals all together in chow hall. We got 40 or 50 people at a time in the chow hall. My elbows touch two other people that I sit with and there's somebody directly across the table from me. Rock told me his unit's hand sanitizer bottles were frequently empty and didn't contain CDC-approved hand sanitizer made with alcohol. At first, when I asked DOC Commissioner Jim Baker about this, he said the inmates I was talking to must be confused. We have created uh, an incredible supply line going to these facilities. I check on that supply line twice a day, personally. After our story ran, Baker acknowledged DOC is struggling to supply its facilities with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Now, probation parole officers are helping the department with its supply. And, by the way, as soon as I asked Baker about the basketball, he had it canceled. Right now, the inmates at Northwest, where the outbreak was, are on full lockdown. They only leave their cells to shower. Folks incarcerated at Vermont's five other prisons are on modified lockdowns. People like Carrie Lazad. We don't leave the unit for absolutely anything unless we go outside for rec. Our meals are brought to us, we eat in our cells, our meds are brought to us. Lazad is incarcerated in Newport. He says when he leaves his cell, he has to wear a mask made out of bed sheets stapled to rubber bands. Lazat is past his minimum sentence and has asthma. He says DOC should let him out so he can quarantine at home in New Hampshire with his mom. And the department has been releasing some inmates earlier than usual. Since March 4th, Vermont's prison population has gone down 15 percent. But advocates, including the Vermont ACLU, say that's not enough. They want more people to be released. That's Emily Corwin with the podcast Brave Little State from Vermont Public Radio. Find more at bravelittlestate.org. Prisoner rights advocates fear the toll that coronavirus could take on the prison population. Many New England states have already granted early release to some low-level prisoners. Still, a recent analysis from WBUR found that about 15,000 inmates and corrections officers have been infected with COVID-19 nationwide. And that's probably an undercount. Before the coronavirus pandemic, poor medical care in Massachusetts jails was already a problem, being investigated by WBUR. In this next story, we look into the injuries and deaths of inmates who were under the care of private companies. It's a multi-billion dollar industry with little public oversight, and it dominates health care in county jails. Here are reporters Christine Wilmson and Beth Healy. Tape is on. Today's date is Monday, June 22nd, approximately 11.44. This is a recording of an internal investigation conducted by the Suffolk County Sheriff's Department. We're just trying to get a picture of what occurred in St. Joe with cellmates. Officers are questioning a cellmate of Roderick Pendleton, a 51-year-old truck driver and preacher with four kids. This is way beyond sick. You mean physically? Physically. Describe it for me how he was way beyond sick. He was eating. He was out there. He was a chair to shower. He was just constantly in, constantly in pain. Over four days in the medical unit at the South Bay House of Correction, Pendleton complained to nurses about abdominal pain and begged to go to the hospital, according to a jail report. He kept throwing up in a bucket just feet from the nurse's office. You look like you're dying. 
The nurses, employees of an Alabama company called NAFCARE, apparently didn't recognize Pendleton's dire condition. I was just thinking, like, why don't they just send him to the hospital? They sat there and let him suffer all that time, and by he was half dead when they took him to the hospital. That's Pendleton's sister, Janice. Pendleton died on Father's Day 2015, within hours of being taken to the hospital, according to the jail's investigation. The medical examiner determined he'd died of a bowel obstruction. We met Janice at her Dorchester home and shared the records we obtained. It was the first time she'd seen any details of her brother's death. Oh, wow, he crawled onto the floor. Janice pages through the testimony of her brother's cellmates describing his decline. She can't understand why the staff didn't send him to the hospital sooner. He laid in, he, he laid in that infirmary suffering, and there was no one with him. To this day, no one has answered Janice's question. Why didn't her brother get help in time? Do you remember Roderick Pendleton? I do not. That's Cindy Lou Lyons. She was one of the nurses responsible for his care, and now manages NAFCARE staff at the jail. Honestly, I don't remember the case, and I can't answer on something that I don't recall. Is there a death that sticks out in your mind? No. No one else at NAFCARE would comment on Pendleton's death. Suffolk County Sheriff Stephen Tompkins declined to be interviewed. The jail's superintendent is Yolanda Smith. This is certainly not to pass the buck on NAFCARE, but we hire NAFCARE to um, handle medical care. NAFCARE has not always met its obligations to the jail. The Suffolk County Sheriff charged the company $2.4 million in penalties from 2015 to 2017 for staffing shortages. More than half of the 13 county jails in the state hire private firms to provide health care at a cost to taxpayers of about $42 million a year. WBUR found cases in which staff overlooked serious symptoms, dispensed the wrong medication, or disregarded pleas for help. At the Suffolk County Jail, a man alleges he was wrongly told he had HIV and was made to take medication for it and didn't get his anti-seizure meds. A 22-year-old barber alleged that his severe allergic reaction to antibiotics was ignored, leading to a long hospital stay and most of his skin peeling away. Companies paid settlements in both cases. These companies are inherently motivated to make money. I mean, that's why they're in the business. Andrew Harris is a criminal justice professor at UMass Lowell. He says rationing care outside of jail is one thing, but when you're locked up, you have no control over your health care, and you can't dial 911. There's a calculus that takes place. There are going to be situations where care is going to be withheld, very often with, with negative consequences for the patients. That's what Eileen Taylor saw as a physician assistant for NAFCARE at the Essex County Jail. If they could cut a corner, they would. They would absolutely. She says while working there in 2016 and 17, NAFCARE tried to limit urgent orders for blood tests because they cost extra money. Other medical orders were overridden, Taylor says, by NAFCARE staff in an office a thousand miles away. They would go over our charts, and they are usurping my orders on my patients that I saw, but that was saving them money. She also says staff was reminded that hospital trips were costly. It was like, don't send them out unless you absolutely positively have to, to, you know, the hospital. It it had nothing to do with proper care. Taylor has a workers' comp claim against the company and is part of a lawsuit with employees over pay. NAFCARE denied overriding orders and said it sends patients to the hospital when necessary. 
WBUR found that trying to avoid hospital trips, even in emergencies, is not only embedded in jail culture, but in the contracts between sheriffs and the private companies. Suffolk's contract with NAFCARE seeks to limit the number of medical trips outside the House of Correction to 80 per month. When NAFCARE goes over the cap, it pays the sheriff a penalty of $100 per trip. The Suffolk County Jail Assistant Deputy Superintendent, Rochelle Steinberg, defends the use of penalties. If we have someone that has IV antibiotics, we have asked the medical vendor to be able to manage those on site so we don't have a person at the hospital for weeks on end with officers there 24 hours a day, as opposed to being able to perform that function on site. We found caps, bonuses, and penalties aimed at limiting health care costs and jail contracts across the state. David Fati is director of the ACLU National Prison Project. It's hard to imagine a more blatant and inappropriate disincentive to provide care uh, than a financial penalty for providing care. Essex also had incentives to cut down on trips, but got rid of them under its new health care provider, Wellpath Holdings of Nashville, Tennessee. It's the largest in the country, with private equity owners and $1.6 billion in annual revenue. These private companies serve another purpose for sheriffs. They assume a portion of liability when things go wrong. According to a lawsuit filed by his father, the jail's medical staff and the rapid response team made crucial mistakes that likely led to his slow and painful death. shows the WellPath workers who were on duty at the jail the morning Bolthouse suffered 17 seizures and died. Our investigation into her death pointed to larger questions about policies at the jail and the private company that's running its health care. WellPath and its predecessor company have been sued in federal court more than 1,200 times in the past five years. Both WellPath and NAFCARE boast in marketing materials that they've never lost a legal case. Behind the scenes, both companies have settled lawsuits totaling millions of dollars, according to court records and news reports across the country. Kip Hallman is president of WellPath. This is a litigious environment. Anybody can file a lawsuit, and I think they see us as being a solution to that problem. Based on the contract we signed and the money we're paying them, I think we're getting a good bang for our buck. That's Worcester County Jail Superintendent David Tuttle. In a recent contract with the jail, WellPath pledged to cut hospital and off-site spending sharply and to split any savings with the sheriff. And to be honest with you, like the insinuation that I think you're making and other people have made is, well, this forces you to cut care and costs. And because it wasn't true, why even have it in there anymore? So it was taken out. There wasn't, but you did use it. Yeah, it wasn't that much. It was a couple of thousand dollars maybe. In fact, Worcester got more than $51,000 over 2016 and 17. One of WellPath's founders is Jerry Boyle. He started as a prison guard and became superintendent of Bridgewater State Hospital. He's pleaded not guilty to bribing a Virginia sheriff to win health contracts. Boyle has resigned, but before that, he helped WellPath win contracts with Worcester and other jails. A note here, WellPath is a financial underwriter for WBUR. It had no editorial involvement in this story. Hallman, the WellPath president, stands behind the contracts. The contracts are very similar to what you would find um, in healthcare at large, um, uh, what we would call the free world. The other large jail medical provider in Massachusetts is Correctional Psychiatric Services, or CPS. It holds medical contracts with four county jails in the state. One of them is with the Bristol County Jail. So just take these little cards I gave you and swipe them up against this box, okay? Since CPS signed a contract with Bristol in 2009, there have been 29 deaths. No other jail had more. More and more you're seeing, we become 
hospitals in a lot of ways. That's Sheriff Thomas Hodgson. He defends CPS's work and says jails have challenging populations. Older inmates who've come in who've been involved in drugs for quite some time and, you know, they're not as nearly as healthy as they would be otherwise. Hodgson has done a number of controversial things over the years, including charging inmates co-pays for health care. He says his jail staff is focused on the care and custody of inmates. It's never to our advantage to fall short of, of giving the proper care to anybody here. That's, that's our charge. It was at Hodgson's jail in Bristol on March 16, 2012, that Kelly White was dying. It would later be determined she had a heart infection and could have been treated with IV antibiotics. She was 42 and had been at Bristol for three days, picked up on a warrant for owing $200 in court fees. She was sick and withdrawing from longtime drug use. Jail records show that morning, a nurse sent her to the infirmary in the next building over. A couple of hours later, guards brought White back to her cell. But right away, inmates were shouting that she needed help. Her cellmate told me she knew she was going to die. She said it to her. I'm dying. You know, you know, how much pain do you have to be in to say to yourself, I'm dying? That's White's sister, Abigail Malstay. Officers took White to a maintenance hallway where she waited in a wheelchair for a ride back to the infirmary. It was too late. At 11.43 a.m., White was no longer responsive. It's frustrating because there is a window where she possibly, you know, could have been helped. So it's like, what the hell went on where they're like, good to go, back to this cold cell alone. We asked Sheriff Hodgson why Kelly White didn't go to the hospital sooner. He deferred to CPS. CPS declined to go on tape and would not comment on White's death. The company's operating chief, Beth Cheney, said, quote, The last thing we want is to have people die. Mulstay says it's not just the death that bothers her. People die. I get it. We're all going to die. Not like that, though. Not like that. Foam at the mouth, scared as hell. For Mulstay and for other relatives of inmates we spoke to, it's the suffering. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Beth Healy. And I'm Christine Wilmson. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, a tow truck driver wishes people would respect his personal space during the pandemic. And we hear from a family celebrating Ramadan in isolation. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. We're back. On the show last week, we asked you to share your plans for summer based on all the uncertainty. You know, can you go on that trip or will that event be canceled? We heard from Rachel Gilbert about her trip to Northern California. She says, we are just praying and hoping that things are normal enough that we can do our normal summer trip. Since I don't get to see my parents very often, we are willing to take some risk to travel. But I'll also be about six months pregnant at that point. So it's a complicated decision. We also heard from this listener. This is Kyle from West Glover, Vermont. And I actually had a tour planned. I'm a musician. I was going to be in Europe. But instead, I'm at home and I'm going to use this time to record my next three albums. So something I've never done before, but hey, I've got time on my hands. All right. Bye. We followed up with Kyle Woolard after we got that message. And to clarify, he's planning to record his next three albums just this spring. 
Do you already have three albums worth of material written or are you relying on your creativity to just be on this spring? Oh, I see the confusion. No, I've, I've got like probably 10 albums of material right now. They're in various forms of completion in my head. Some of them, I have them orchestrated all the way down to like what the individual strings are going to do and stuff like that. And others are just, I know the song and I know how it sounds in my head. You know, so I, I think it would, it's probably good for me to get a lot of this stuff out of my head and just done so I can move on because it's kind of like decluttering. So you're like Marie Kondoing your, your musical library in your brain? I'm, I'm Marie Kondoing the crap out of my, the curation <laughs> of my musical library. Willard says he realizes he's lucky to see the pandemic lockdown as a time to declutter and create. You know, it may not be very uh, helpful to just hear like some guy in his cabin being like, oh, just use this time to be really creative. Some people are, are, this is kind of life and death. When the sailing boats came to shore That's the song The Wide Sargasso Sea by Glorious Leader, Kyle Woolard's solo project. I notice that when I'm out on a walk these days, I'm basically grading people based on how much space they give me or whether they're wearing a mask. This week, I'm wondering how you feel about social distancing and everyone else's behavior. If you had a message for your neighbors right now, what would it be? Leave your comment at 860-275-7595. Again, that's 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. That's next at ctpublic.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Ralph Rockwell lives in North Wolcott, Vermont. He's a certified mechanic, and he runs a tow truck. Independent producer Erica Heilman visited him recently at a distance, and they talked about what it's like to run a tow truck during a pandemic and how he feels about people getting a little too close. Well, let's see how... This is the sound of me balancing a microphone taped to a Swiffer, taped to a snow scraper, which was taped at the end to a broom handle, balance that on a folding chair. Ralph sat inside his shop next to a tractor, and I sat outside the shop, and we talked for a while. Here's Ralph. How would you say people around here are thinking about this virus? Uh, Some of them are taking it serious, and of course we don't get out much, but uh, some of the people we meet, like we went out yesterday to do do a tow, the first one in a long time. And the gentleman in Crashbury, I tried to tell him as soon as I got out of the truck, I said, I'm at the perfect age to, to get this virus, and I don't want to get it, and I certainly don't want to give it to you, so we got to stay our distance. And because he knew me, uh, he like wanted to get really close, and uh, he opened the back door of the garage so I could come in to jumpstart his mother's car, and he still come around. When he come around, I kind of backed up, you know, uh, but, you know, he thanked me for getting it started. But I think some people don't realize how serious it is. 
uh, can't really get a handle on it. And one guy called last week and needed said needed a car towed. It was in Crashbury and take it to Barton. Turned out that it was it was in another shop's driveway. He'd been there for four months, and the guy decided that day was the day that he wanted it towed to Barton. And AAA always say the member's got to be there, show the card. I called the member and I said, nobody needs to be there, leave us the keys. So she agreed, and we get up there, and the owner of the car is there. And the owner of the shop comes out, and they both want to talk, and I'm trying to back up and stay my distance. I didn't even want to get in the car there. Mike Denton told me, you know, the inside of a car is more dirtier than your toilet seat, if you stop and think about it. You know, that's a real close and fine quarters. Everybody's coughing and sneezing, blowing the nose or whatever, and, you know, very seldom gets sanitized, you know. So I had him put it in neutral and just got it on the truck and got it up there, unloaded it. And the guy, I'm watching him, he's over there pumping gas. Somebody comes in. He's standing within a foot or two of the guy, no gloves on, no mask or nothing, talking away. And it was like, you guys don't get it, you know. So finally I hollered over to him and told him the keys were in it and the window was down and he could secure it. And he come over like he wanted to be my best friend or something. Uh, but we tried to do everything we can to be safe like you're doing today, you know. Uh, but it's hard for people to visualize when it's something they can't see, hear, smell, or taste, you know. But I just believe a lot of the things that they tell you and, and I try to use common sense and... and uh, I don't have hand sanitizers. You couldn't find any. Uh, I had some Preparation H, things that were dried out, poured alcohol on them, so they, they should work good for sanitizing wipes, you know. How old are you? I'm 67. Lord willing, I'll be 68 in June if I make it. Are you afraid for yourself? No. Why? Because I know the Lord, and I know if I die that I'll in a better place but the thing that bothers me the most is the burden it be on my family my wife or my loved ones and I pray every day that nothing happens to either one of our kids because that would be heartbreaking but we just pray to the Lord every day we get up and thank him for what we got and uh Sometimes it gets confusion. You say, I want this, I want that, and you convince yourself you need it. You've you got to have it, you know. And realistically, you don't. You know, like, we lost we lost our Channel 3, and my wife and I, especially my wife, she liked the love shows that come on. You know, and our life revolved around that to to watch them when they come on from 12.30 to 1.30, 2.30. And all of a sudden it went off, you know, and it just wouldn't go. What we found now, we live just fine without it, you know. It, it wasn't a need, you know. You need food to live. You need clean water. You need loved ones. It makes a different perspective on life. What do you need or what do you want? That story comes from independent producer Erica Heilman, reporting for Vermont Public Radio.
It's the holy month of Ramadan right now, and Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano connects with a Muslim family who's adjusting to offering the special evening prayer at home while mosques are closed. Sammy Malik stands in front of his parents and two little brothers with his back turned towards them. He's facing the direction of Mecca from his living room in Newington, leading the family in Tarawih, the evening prayer that follows a day of fasting. His five-year-old brother, Abdullah, did a good job of following along, and afterward, he couldn't help but take the first interview question about the Tarawih prayer for the family. We always do it at the masjid. That's Arabic for mosque. It's where Sammy Malik and his family would have been tonight if it weren't for the pandemic. It kind of like gives us like a new perspective, how we can like stay connected to our religion, keep our faith strong in these times that there's so much uncertainty. In Ramadan's past, he'd be at the Berlin Mosque. The Islamic Association of Greater Hartford still held an evening prayer service at that mosque Friday night. A sheikh recites verses from the second chapter of the Quran in front of no congregants. Dozens of followers are participating virtually. Malik is one of them. He watches Facebook Live from his couch. That's where, for me, I get to, you know, spend the month with, like, my friends and uh, create those, like, long-lasting memories of, like, the month. That's, like, the thing I'll miss the most, being able to, like, go to the mosque. Ramadan continues until May 23rd. Imams with the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford are asking families to sit and watch a virtual tarawih every night and then pray it themselves at home following the service. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Frankie Graziano. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. If you like what you hear, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.